0: Hello and welcome to the Triage Method Podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell, as always. How are you this week, Patty?
1: I am absolutely splendid, Gary. It's quite cold, and obviously the two of us are uh, sitting here for the next hour or so. So you're definitely, you're definitely going to be teeth chattering by the end of this because you get so cold. Whereas... I'm, so,
0: I'm so lean and ripped, that's why. I what.
1: wish that was the case, but no, you're just... Your puny body cavity cannot heat your entire body. However, having said that, I'm also wearing like a woolly fucking fleece thing to keep myself warm. So look, we won't uh, give out about you too much. But what are we talking about today, Gary?
0: Today we're talking about diabetes and we're talking about this in the context of exercise which we haven't actually, I don't think we've had a dedicated episode to this before. We've talked a little bit about nutrition as it relates to diabetes in the past. And in particular, what we talked about was the role of, of body fat during the obesity series and the relationship between that and diabetes. But today, what we want to do is review, firstly, you know, what is diabetes? How might we understand it? How might we understand its pathophysiology and clinical course? And then how does that relate to why exercise is important? Because exercise is an incredible like we it, it's it's just a meme at this point because we say it in, an, in every episode but exercise is such wide-ranging health effects and one of the most pronounced is undoubtedly on its effects on metabolic regulation and glucose regulation in particular so as a result it's a very important intervention for one the general population in terms of just maintaining good metabolic health two, the prevention of type 2 diabetes in particular for those who might be on that spectrum. And then three, the management of diabetes in those with both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. And then a bonus population, I guess you could say, four would be those who are have diabetes and are trying to put it into remission. So exercise might play some role there as well. So that is what we're discussing today.
1: 100%. And what is diabetes, Gary?
0: So diabetes is basically, you can think of it as a disorder of blood glucose regulation. So when we talk about um, blood glucose regulation, I'd like to start there for a moment because it's, it's important to understand that before you understand what diabetes is itself. So firstly, blood glucose and many other physiological parameters are maintained within relatively tight ranges and um, the the range of blood glucose is a little bit more dynamic than some other uh, parameters within the body because it's going to go up and down um, after you eat between meals etc that's normal fluctuation is normal and that's not something that's necessarily pathological despite sometimes seeing that online so sometimes what people what you'll see is that when you're talk when you see people talking about blood glucose or blood sugar they'll freak out about things like, oh, I ate this food and this spiked my blood glucose. You know, you see this in kind of maybe the hypochondriac side of the fitness industry where they track absolutely everything. They measure absolutely everything. They track their blood glucose all the time and they'll do things like cut out fruit from their diet because their blood glucose spiked. But the important thing to understand is that blood glucose increasing after you've eaten totally normal. Blood glucose dropping again between meals and when you're active, etc. totally normal. So it's not that we want to maintain this completely constant level of blood glucose. It's that we want to maintain it within certain ranges, and we want it to be able to go up and down in line with normal physiology. If blood glucose becomes too high, and particularly this is more of a long-term concern, it can be a short-term concern, but generally a long-term concern, blood glucose ends up being toxic to many different parts of the body. So blood vessels and nerves are two very notable tissues uh, of the body that are affected by chronically high blood glucose, but it's also going to impact many other tissues. So high blood glucose over time can be considered to be toxic. Okay. It is a toxin if you have too much glucose in your blood. And then on the other
1: side, because it's very easy for people to hear that and think, fuck, oh I should be eating glucose No ever. carbs. <laughs>
0: like,
1: <laughs> yeah. you want to think of this like stagnant water, you know, rather than thinking like, oh, there's glucose in my blood and that's the issue, full stop. You know, that's not the way it works. If you think of it more like, oh, there's blood, there's glucose in my blood and it's just sitting there stagnant, you know, that's where you run into issues. You know, it's kind of like, I don't know, Lyme scale. I suppose. That's more akin to it or the problem rather than thinking like glucose is a toxin or oh, fuck Gary, you just said that I'm going to have to give up all those delicious carbs that I eat. You know, that's not the issue. Chronically high blood glucose. That's potentially an issue.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. That's it. And like, that's the case with everything in physiology. Like water is also toxic as in if I go downstairs and drink five to 10 liters of water right now, there's a, a genuine risk that I could become hyponatremic, low levels of sodium in the blood, and deal with consequences thereof. You know, there have been people that have died from a cerebral edema and seizures from just drinking too much water. So everything can be toxic if it's uh, taken to extreme quantities. And that's the same case here with blood glucose. And the thing is, it's not just about high blood glucose because high blood glucose, yes, it's a, it's a long-term concern most often. Low blood glucose is also something that can be critical. It can be fatal. And generally, it can be so in a an acute setting. So you're driving, your blood glucose drops too low, you crash the car, you're dead. Okay? So these things can happen far more short-term when it comes to low blood glucose. And when you're thinking of glucose regulation, you have to think of why exactly it exists. And that's because... Glucose is incredibly important, okay? The vast majority of our cells in our bodies are, you know, they really, really like to have a steady supply of glucose for them to be able to function well. And that's why these systems exist, to be able to regulate it so that we can get enough to continue maintaining peak, you know, function, but not so much that it begins to damage us over time. So that's the ideal. And the way that this occurs in the body is that, you eat a meal, glucose is absorbed. Okay. There's plenty of different complicated mechanisms there. There's ways that your brain can sense glucose in the absence of it being absorbed, all these types of things. But just think of you've eaten a meal, you get this sugar that's now being absorbed. And when I say sugar, this could be from fruits, it could be from vegetables, it could be from, you know, sweets or table sugar. It's not just, you know, the, the sugar in, in the spoon. So you take it in some sort of glucose source that enters your bloodstream. Naturally, when it enters your bloodstream, the level of glucose in the the blood is going to rise. That blood blood supply is then going to be sent around the body. The glucose can be taken up by various tissues. But what's important here is that the pancreas and the beta cells of the pancreas in particular are going to sense that your blood glucose has risen. So the blood glucose has risen, and now what we need to do is find a way to make sure we don't allow that to go too far. So let's say you had you know, 300 grams of Haribo, right? We're gonna need to deal with that. We don't want all of that to be going to the blood and to be consistently rising. So what happens is the beta cells of your pancreas release a hormone called insulin. And what insulin does is insulin basically enables the other tissues in the body to be able to take up glucose in a a, a kind of a a controlled but a, a nice smooth manner. Okay, so it's taken up nice and smoothly to the point where blood glucose is now going to be regulated at a normal level. Okay, so that's a very, very important process. And on the other side of the spectrum, then your blood glucose drops too low, the alpha cells of the pancreas are going to release a hormone called glucagon, and glucagon is going to lead to basically the opposite effect, where we get an increase in blood glucose. And there are other hormones involved in that process as well, cortisol, norepinephrine, some others. But the fundamental thing that we need to understand, particularly in the context of diabetes, is that insulin is the primary hormone of interest that enables us to go from a high glucose state to a normal or low glucose state. The reason the low glucose state is important is because in type 1 diabetes, we have a situation where we have an absence or insufficient amount of insulin. And in that case, you if you're taking exogenous insulin, so you're injecting insulin, bodybuilders do this as well, you're injecting insulin, let's say you take too much, what happens? Your blood glucose drops right down. Okay, so that's not exactly a a good situation either. We need the right amount of insulin in order in order to maintain normal blood glucose levels. So that's just an introduction to how this normally functions, and then this allows us to understand what happens in the case of diabetes. So diabetes is. Before
1: we want that, we should also state that there is actually more going on here than. Oh, for
0: sure, a lot more. And
1: this is one of those things that's it's quite annoying, but it's also so necessary. We have to focus on blood glucose, but this is affecting, you know, blood lipids as well. This is affecting your amino acid metabolism. This is affecting your, you know, even like mTOR signaling, which is, you know, we'll say that's how you build muscle. There's so much other stuff that's going on, but it doesn't necessarily improve our initial understanding. And if we just focus on blood glucose, we can get to a level of understanding that we can then discuss what to actually do especially as it relates to exercise but don't take this as oh diabetes is a disease of only blood glucose that's not really the case right no. not like, at all especially when we consider like you know what i'm gonna call them blood lipids but just fatty acid metabolism and stuff like insulin does a huge amount for that and we kind of just forget about it we kind of just ignore it Because if we fix the blood glucose issues, or we look at that purely as the the metric that we care about, if we fix that, it automatically, well, usually at least, fixes all the fatty acid-related stuff, the lipid-related stuff. So again, there's more going on, but we're just going to focus or hone in on the glucose side of things, because it makes the discussion a lot easier, and it actually doesn't improve your knowledge, but it doesn't improve your ability to manage this stuff and impact change by, you know, us doing a deep dive of uh, diabetes and amino acid metabolism or diabetes and, you know, uh, fat uh, metabolism.
0: Yeah. The way I view this podcast is like, this is like your introductory diabetes lecture. Okay. This isn't, this isn't everything. And it's certainly not everything when it comes to insulin. Insulin is an incredibly complex hormone in terms of its uh, actions throughout the body. And some people would even argue that when it comes to understanding type 2 diabetes pathophysiology, that it's actually almost more important to understand the derangements in fat metabolism because they actually kind of drive the disease to a great extent. And the glucose is almost secondary, you could think of. So um, yeah, that's kind of for another day. I'll touch on it shortly. But uh, for now, we just want to focus on the glucose side of things because that uh, does help you to get a, a clear picture as to why diabetes is important and how it manifests. So type 1 diabetes is the one that's not lifestyle related okay or or not really lifestyle related anyway um and this is because it's basically the absence of insulin secretion so you've got a condition in which you're you're born you can d- develop it later in life but generally it's manifest quite early in life where you have insufficient or absent insulin secretion from those beta cells in the pancreas so you can think of what might happen there if you have no insulin what happens so you begin consuming carbohydrates and your glucose increases and it increases and it increases and you don't have any insulin to take that back down so that leads to many consequences both uh, short and long term Um, generally in type 2 diabetes you're blood glucose isn't going to get so crazy high that it's going to like, you know, kill you or give you seizures or put you in a coma, like short term, but that can happen in type one diabetes. Okay. So, uh, that's obviously a problem. And for that reason, people with type one diabetes end up taking uh, exogenous insulin. So they'll inject insulin in accordance with, you know, the amount of carbohydrates that they're consuming. So that's a, it's a lifelong commitment. It's a big commitment. Uh, But that's, that's kind of the, it's still relevant exercise for sure. But type two diabetes is really the one that becomes far more lifestyle related and has the capacity to enter remission. So type two diabetes is a state of Resistance to insulin action—that's kind of one of the core parts of the disease process—and so that's referred to as insulin resistance. And if you think of everything I said there about how insulin is working in terms of enabling glucose uptake, you can imagine that if this insulin was going to the to a cell, it interacts with its receptor and it's not getting any response, okay, so you're knocking on the door, but no one's coming, no one's opening the door for you, or they're very slow to open the door, then what you end up with is poor blood glucose regulation, because the insulin that you're putting out is not leading to the desired reduction in blood glucose that you would want, okay? Now, that can be compensated for early on in the disease process, because what happens is, Let's say you have some insulin resistance, okay? You're not, uh, the person isn't uh, answering the door. What do you do? You knock harder. You keep knocking, you ring the doorbell. That's effectively the equivalent in the body of increasing the amount of insulin you're secreting. So that's hyperinsulinemia. So that's something you see early on in the diabetes process. You'll increase insulin secretion more. And what this does is it enables that glucose to be controlled, but it's being controlled with an ab- above normal Amount of insulin being secreted, and as you can imagine, that becomes quite tiring over time. If you want to think of it like that, so eventually, if you keep having this um, blood glucose that's spiking, and you have to keep secreting more and more and more insulin, eventually you end up with beta cell dysfunction or beta cell failure. And what this means is that those cells in the pancreas that secrete insulin are no longer able to keep up, and they check out. They say, "I'm not, I'm not able to do this anymore." And you get the loss of beta cell mass, and that's really where the disease of type two diabetes starts to become far more of a problem, because now you're in a situation where your compensatory increase in insulin is no longer possible. So now you start to get, re- you start to really see that skyrocketing of uh, blood glucose levels. So that's fundamentally how it manifests in terms of the insulin and glucose side of things, and because type 2 diabetes is a lifestyle-related disease in some sense. There's still genetic contributors for sure, but it's very much lifestyle-related. You have to understand where that comes from. And the biggest contributor to that really is um, obesity or high levels of body fat. That's the biggest contributor uh, to type 2 diabetes from a lifestyle perspective. So it's not you ate too much carbs, it's not you ate too much sugar, so your blood sugar increased. That's a very simplistic way of understanding it. It's not that simple. Rather, what happens is if you're consuming excess calories over time, okay, so you're in positive energy balance, what happens is you end up getting an increase in in body fat, okay? And every one of us has like this sort of subcutaneous fat threshold you can consider. And what that means is that all the body fat, let's say that's you know in our chest, in our arms, in our legs, beneath our skin, that body fat is has a certain level that it's comfortable filling up to. So the body fat begins to fill up to a certain level, and as we continue with that process, what ends up happening is more but more fat begins to get stored around our organs. Okay, so this is a body fat that is on the liver and the pancreas of most relevance, you can have other fat, you know, in uh, other different types of organs as well, for example, the kidneys. But the main thing that you want to consider is liver fat and pancreatic fat. As this begins to occur, this is really where we start to see the pathophysiology of type two diabetes start to take off, okay, because you hit that threshold of body fat of normal body fat, let's say subcutaneous body fat, what happens that we get an increase in liver fat, And then that liver fat begins to spill over into the pancreas. And as that fat begins to get stored in the pancreas, we then end up in a position where we're much um, poorer as uh, maintaining normal blood glucose as a result of the defect in insulin function. Okay, so this is uh, referred to more broadly as the twin cycles hypothesis of type 2 diabetes. And this is kind of probably the best explanation as to why an increase in body fat leads to type two diabetes. And it also goes on to explain where exactly the uh, role of 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 exercise and nutrition in remission comes in as well. Now, there's multiple other steps in the twin cycles hypothesis. You have to understand um, things like uh, VLDL and triglycerides. And again, that's the kind of lipid metabolism side of things that we were talking about. So there is a, a more complex relationship there. And that goes on to explain why you know we see certain changes in blood lipids that would be of relevance to heart disease in type 2 diabetes as well so that's super interesting and super relevant conversation but for the most part what I want you to understand here is very simply we have a chronic energy excess this leads to an increase in body fat our subcutaneous body fat threshold uh, gets exceeded or is reached and then we get this spillover of fat one to the liver and two to the pancreas and that then leads to more of these pathophysiological changes associated with type 2 diabetes and just one final note on that is that um people vary quite a bit in their susceptibility to surpassing this uh, body fat threshold and that's one of the reasons why people can get a little bit confused about the role of obesity in type 2 diabetes because they'll say oh but this person is thinner and they have diabetes, and this person is fatter, and they don't have diabetes. Therefore, it can't be the body fat. But what we know is that different people have um, a different ability to increase their Uh, fat cell size versus their fat cell number and a different propensity to store body fat centrally, for example, around the abdomen and then around the organs than other people. So there's variations in this. And then there's also variations in just basic insulin resistance that is associated with exercise, but is also associated with one's genetics and general lifestyle. And we know that the, the state of insulin resistance itself is going to modify the storage of liver fat and so on. So there's a lot going on there. But fundamentally, I want you to think of those two organs, liver and pancreas, storage of fat there, and that's then what drives this process forward.
1: Yeah, I just have two things to add. First of all, when we're talking about the link between obesity and diabetes here, we also have to consider that it is cumulative when we're comparing two individuals. Like if someone just gained, I don't know, 100 kilos of body fat in a year versus someone who's had that 100 kilos of extra body fat for the last 10 years, like they are different scenarios. Yeah. And we have to fact about it. Now, obviously, I'm being you know hyperbolic here, going like, "Oh, hundred kilos," but there is a cumulative effect. There's a time course effect to this stuff as well, you know. Um, but one thing I want to just bring up because this actually confuses a few people is in type one diabetes. Okay, right? Let's just say you're you've just you're an eight year old, a nine year old, whatever. You've got type one diabetes the time or not the time course the way that usually manifests is uncontrolled weight loss you know you're basically pissing out glucose and you see this individual they feel like they're eating everything in sight but they're not gaining weight in fact they're actually losing weight and again their their urine literally is like <laughs> honey it's like just sugar right so we see that happen this person again Weight loss is occurring. They're uncontrolled weight loss. We'll just call it like that, right? But then we get to type 2 diabetes. And now you're telling me that it's because they're gaining too much fat. And that's the reason that we've got this diabetes going on. How do we square those two things? How do we square the fact that like, oh, in type 1 diabetes, which we're saying is like complete you know, uh, beta cell function cessation, or, you know, nearly complete, whatever, uh, all of a sudden now we've got uncontrolled weight loss. Right. And then you tell me, oh, well, when this person loses five or 10% of their beta cell function and they have type two diabetes here, uh, it's actually because of a fat storage issue. How do we square those two things, Gary?
0: Yeah. So like firstly to, to understand, I suppose that like um, the type one diabetes question, <clears throat> I didn't touch much on the pathophysiology of that because it's not really that relevant to this discussion, but it's, it's, it's thought of as being an autoimmune disease with multiple different potential triggers that actually surprisingly aren't very well understood at this point in time. But um, if you think of, let's say you have a, you, you're a, a type one diabetic and you have this blood glucose that's just soaring. Okay, so it's it seems to be just continuously increasing. There's we're not able to to get it back down. Not working. Okay, what ends up happening there is where does that where where can that glucose go? We can't effectively get it into our muscles. We can't effectively get it into our you know our our body fat stores um, because we don't have insulin. Insulin also isn't exhibiting its normal um actions on fat metabolism so there're some of the things we didn't touch on but insulin has a an important role in in lipogenesis and the storage of fat as well um and, and amino acid metabolism etc as we said so the, the these changes you're basically at like the equivalent of like end-stage end type 2 diabetes in some sense in that you have basically no beta cell function so you you're almost thinking of these two things as being different sides of the pathophysiological spectrum, because in type one diabetes, you're entering with all of the kind of end stage complications in the sense. So at least in the glucose sense, or you're not able to control it at all. So what can happen is we begin to basically, um, pee out more urine or pee out more glucose. That's one way that we can, uh, get rid of it. So we get rid of, uh, glucose through the urine. Uh, there it's, some people say, I, I don't know, I, is this true? It probably is, is that back in the day doctors would uh, taste urine so to see if someone had diabetes, so they'd taste that it was sweet. Pretty,
1: pretty well attested in uh, Egyptian yeah. and Greek uh, yeah. texts. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah also so I'm just as an aside, some people wouldn't actually taste it themselves. They'd put it out and let ants. <laughs> they'd be like, oh, ants go towards the yeah. sugar-containing one. They'd have, like, water versus you know a diabetic piss <laughs> um, yeah
0: <laughs> yeah so that's uh that's an interesting one and um what was i was gonna say so so yeah glucose can be gotten rid of basically in the urine but but when it comes to type 2 diabetes uh you, the the diabetic state <laughs> of the deranged with some blood glucose What what i want you to understand is that this is the result of not the cause as such of all the increase in body fat. So the the the, the body fat and the energy excess, et cetera, it's, it's very relevant, but in some ways it's, it's irrelevant to understanding the, the glucose itself because the, the glucose outcome at like end stage type two diabetes can have many similarities to type one diabetes. But how we got there, one is an autoimmune process where we got destruction of the beta cells, whereas two is destruction of the beta cells as a result of, chronic uh, high levels of body fat and fat uh, deposition within the pancreas and subsequent beta cell failure from this insulin resistance etc so they're just like different points in the spectrum and like the thing is that because they're both called diabetes they seem like they're similar diseases but they're really not like the only thing that we're talking about is that it's almost like a shared symptom in that yeah they both affect glucose metabolism but they're very very different in terms of their diagnosis in terms of their treatment etc they're very very different diseases
1: yeah and you could almost imagine if someone could survive with type 2 diabetes long enough to completely destroy all beta cell function they would effectively start exhibiting the same symptoms as someone who has type 1 diabetes exactly like it's basically almost almost like a circle or almost like a horseshoe almost you know um but the fact is people with type two diabetes are very unlikely to get to that point where they start basically exhibiting the, the symptoms of being type one diabetic, you know, get into like full beta cell function, you know, decay, if you will, or collapse, you know, like they're going to run into most likely far more complications before they get to that stage, you know? Yeah. But anyway, let's move on to uh, exercise and diabetes because that's actually what this episode is about.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so we've laid we laid the foundation. You have an idea as to to where you know diabetes comes from, etc. Now, most important thing is where does exercise fit into this? And it actually fits in, in in multiple different ways because you can think of exercise as like in a very juvenile manner. Let's say like your entry level understanding of exercise. Exercise requires that we use plenty of energy. Glucose is a big source of energy when it comes to exercise, and therefore. The more we exercise, the more glucose we use up for energy, and that reduces our blood glucose. Entry level understanding and true, and that's the that's like the first entry point to understand the role of exercise is that if you have all this blood glucose in your blood, and we go around and we go and we exercise, um, we're basically starting to use that up. And there's two important components to that. One, exercise enhances what's referred to as non insulin-dependent glucose uptake so that's one element of this and then two insulin-dependent glucose uptake and what what exercise can do is enhance uh, the sensitivity of your cells um, and especially your muscles to insulin so let's say we have a state of insulin resistance we're not getting that response when we're knocking on the door Um, effectively what uh, exercise is doing here is you go and you exercise and it's the equivalent of the person answering the door now being in the front room instead of being like out the back. So they're going to be more responsive to you knocking on the door. So we increase our insulin sensitivity in response to exercise. And then we directly reduce blood glucose in response to um, non-insulin dependent glucose uptake as well. Um, And then like, that's just like the short term, like entry level, right? We've exercised, what happens now? Longer term, there are far more interesting adaptations because like, think of it like this. When people exercise for long periods of time, this goes for, for endurance athletes um, and resistance training. So I'll start with the general. What they do is that we end up storing more um, muscle glycogen Um, in our muscles. okay, It makes more sense for us to start storing more carbohydrates, more glucose in our muscles because we want them to be there. We want that glucose to be there so that we can use it readily within our muscles next time we exercise. And people who exercise more store more of that glucose in muscle glycogen stores. So you can think of chronic exercise as being basically it's increasing the size of the sink for blood glucose. So we can get more of this glucose into these tissues and out of the bloodstream. So that's something that occurs chronically in response to exercise. You can imagine then that resistance training in particular probably has a really nice effect on increasing the size of that sink. Why? Because we increase the size of the muscle. Increase the size of the muscle, it can now store more muscle glycogen. This is why you see, if you follow any bodybuilders, And you see them before their um, bodybuilding shows they'll be eating like a thousand plus grams of carbohydrates and you're thinking to yourself where is all this going and it's going into these muscles primarily at least because they've depleted their muscle glycogen and now they're replenishing all that so they have this massive sink that they can put all this glucose into and interestingly in in terms of resistance training there's a recent meta-analysis from this year, which is basically a summary of loads of different types of studies. So it gives you a, a nice insight into, you know, what the, the, the truest interpretation might be. And what this found was that not only is the relationship or the reduction in blood glucose long-term in response to resistance training, not only is it the result of, you know, the total amount of training that you do, which it is, it's, it's a volume-dependent effect, it's also seems to be adaptation dependent. So people who are getting greater strength outcomes in response to their training seem to have better um, improvements in insulin sensitivity or glucose regulation, which is really interesting because it's. Um, I wouldn't say that's necessarily intuitive, but it does seem to be seem to be true. And the the fact that the strength is measured in that study, the question is, is strength. The genuine mediator here, or is strength the proxy for the increase in size and muscle mass? Probably a bit of both. Probably also the fact that people who are, you know, gaining more strength, they're probably training more productively, you know, putting more effort into their training. They might be training a little bit more, etc. So it does seem to be that long term, not only is it about the amount of calories that you're burning in exercise or energy expenditure. It's also about all of these other changes in terms of the adaptations that you're getting. Other things that you can imagine when it comes to resi- or uh, aerobic training in particular would be, let's say the improvement in uh, mitochondrial mass and mitochondrial function, which we know is uh, closely associated with, these, um, with basically normal metabolic regulation. And we know that uh, we get damage to mitochondria uh, in type 2 diabetes, especially in response to this chronic glucotoxic state. So there's adaptations that occur on the level of hours and then on the level of days and then on the level of weeks, months and years. So basically my my overall kind of interpretation is that I I don't think people need to sweat too much the question of should I do aerobic or should I do resistance training? Because it seems like they might have some sort of synergistic effect, where when you measure the two and you say which leads to better improvements in blood glucose regulation, it doesn't seem to be too important. It doesn't see, like there's some studies that find some differences, but not very clinically meaningful. The overall thing would be to exercise more, and then there's the the fact that increasing the size of, of your muscles probably beneficial, but also increasing your overall cardiorespiratory fitness, mitochondrial function, etc., probably also has independent benefits. So why not both?
1: Yeah, I would 100% agree. And that is generally what we recommend doing aerobic mm-hmm. training and some resistance training, getting stronger, building muscle. Like it just seems to be the most effective you know, path for so many disease states and just general health uh, in general. Um, so do some resistance training and do some aer- aerobic training and you can call it all good you know now we would argue and again based on recent studies you would definitely argue it uh that you would want to be on a more effective training plan than a less effective but even even a less effective training plan is still effective you know like obviously if you can go on a training plan that's going to actually result in increases in muscle increases in strength and increases in mitochondrial function mitochondrial biogenesis etc right like that would be beneficial but even just going out and doing some sort of movement is going to have benefits you know like it could be the shittest plan ever but the fact that you're going out and doing some movement like you're getting some of those benefits you know they're more of the the transient benefits let's just say you're not getting the adaptations right but you're getting those transient benefits you're getting those transient like reductions in blood glucose which is ideal in this case right so exercise we're not going to be exercise gatekeepers (laughs) like just go ahead do some movement but having said that gary what are some exercise recommendations that we could kind of put in place to help people uh you know decide on what to do obviously we're saying oh do some uh, resistance training and do some aerobic training but where would you start because you have to remember that a lot of people with type 2 diabetes especially you know maybe they haven't been exercising in a while they you know they're not really the exercise person like where do they start they might be overweight they might be someone that's a little bit hesitant to go to a gym etc etc where do we start with this person
0: yeah so like the ideal of course is that we get to the normal exercise guidelines like you know resistance, aerobic, etc. I'll touch on those in a moment, but it's so important, and this goes for healthy populations as well. To note that even little things like taking movement breaks throughout your day, or going for a five to ten minute walk after a meal, and just walking more throughout the day, these can have huge impacts on blood glucose regulation. So you know if you are, um, if you are a, a type two diabetic you can see this for real when you just check your, your blood glucose. So you check your blood glucose one hour after a meal when you haven't gone for a walk and then check it when you have gone for a walk, you'll see pretty pronounced differences. And this has been pretty well studied. So I think that's the, the first thing is that to to understand that these small little movement breaks, particularly around mealtime have like pretty potent effects, you know, and that that might be very useful for someone in terms of, for example, reducing the amount of medication that they have to take. Um, In both type 1 and type 2 diabetes, it might be the case that if they're um, on, on insulin, then they might be able to reduce the amount of insulin that they use. Because they're exercising more, they're getting a better response um, to the insulin that they're taking, and they're getting better blood glucose regulation from that exercise that they're doing. So this exists on the level of just Going for a small bit of a walk, walking around the block once after you've had your lunch, walking around the block once after you've had your dinner. You work in an office, let's say you're sedentary for the entire day. Can you get up maybe three times independently during the morning shift for literally two three minutes? And then could you at lunchtime walk to have your lunch at a park bench that's five minutes away? Or could it be that you know you have if you're having a meeting, can you do a walking meeting? These these little things that you can bring into your schedule that can really start to improve blood glucose regulation. So that's the first thing. If exercise is too intimidating for you at this point in time, getting to the gym is too intimidating, no problem. Start with the movement breaks and start with just walking more throughout the day. It has a very potent effect. Then from there, what you can do is you can start to look at more conventional exercise. And here, when it comes to diabetes, we end up with the same recommendations that we would give to anyone else in the sense that we want to at least be getting to the uh, general exercise guidelines for health, which are 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity aerobic exercise per week, that's dependent on the level of fitness that you're currently at. So let's say you're someone um, you've with, with obesity, you haven't been exercising, you have a poor level of cardiorespiratory fitness. If you're walking briskly on the flat, that might count as your moderate intensity exercise because this intensity of exercise basically corresponds with You being short of breath, you know, if I was walking next to you, we might be able to have a light conversation, but you're pretty short of breath during that conversation. You want to be getting near there if you're going to be calling your your exercise intensity moderate and and starting to really get those cardiorespiratory benefits from that. So for some of you, that might be a, a, a cycle at a solid pace outdoors. You know, some of you might be running at a 4.30 per kilometer pace. And some of you, it might simply be walking briskly on the flat. Totally depends where you're at but if you can get 150 to 300 minutes per week, you are flying it. And that's, it's quite a bit. It is quite a bit in fairness. Um, but if you moderate the intensity and don't push too hard during all those cardio sessions, you can get that level of volume. If you're doing more intense cardio sessions, you can kind of think of it as cutting that target in half. So they often say 75 to 150 minutes of vigorous intensity exercise. So that might be something like, you know, a. Uh, if you're doing a hard training session, your heart rate's like really elevating, you're really short of breath, that's going to be more vigorous. And then on the resistance training side of things, we're looking we're looking at getting at least two, I would say three plus, to be honest, um, days of resistance training per week where you're training basically every major muscle group. And ra- what I want you to understand here is that as you begin to enter resistance training, I don't want you to, to be saying to yourself, oh, I'm going to go on a diabetic weight training program. So no, 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 you're going to go on a weight training program that's going to help you get strong and more muscular like everyone else in the gym. Like that's fundamentally the goal is that, as we've said, the adaptations seem to correlate with better uh, glucose regulation over time. And therefore what we want is that you're going to the gym just like anyone else. So, you know, you're doing your, your lower body day, you're doing your upper body day, or maybe you're doing full body days and you're aiming to, you know, train everything across these three days. You're pushing yourself close to failure and adhering to all the standard things that we generally recommend when it comes to weight training, you want to be doing all that. So the recommendations overall are not very different to what we would say to anyone else. Okay. We're generally going to be saying similar things to the general population. The caveats in in diabetes is that you may need to be considering um, the movement breaks around meals and just baseline walking throughout the day rather than being sedentary. Like that might be more important for you. Um, and then the other thing that becomes a bit more important and nuanced is how you manage your uh, medications, your insulin dosing, or non-insulin um, diabetic medications as well. That's something that you there's no like like straight up recommendation that you'll find for that. What you'd want to do there is, if you uh, have th- if you have diabetes of any sort. Speak to your di- di- you speak to your diabetic nurse or your endocrinologist or whoever is managing you, your GP, maybe. And you say, I'm starting this new exercise program. How do you think I should modify my medications? So maybe it's you modify based on your uh, blood glucose changes over time, um, the glucose in terms of your glucose diary, etc. But that's something I'd always recommend is if you're starting a, a new program, you're starting any sort of new exercise like speak to your doctor about that or speak to your diabetic nurse about that as to how you might need to change uh, what you've been doing up to now to manage your blood glucose now that you have this new glucose reducing intervention which is exercise
1: yeah and especially with medications like it is one of those things where some people are going to need to adjust their medications some people are not like for example you could be on something like metformin right Mm -hmm. and you might be on metformin and you're only able to get your like with the dose that you're on, you're only able to get your blood glucose, your your morning, your fasting blood glucose, you're only able to get it down to like seven or eight, which is still, you know, decent, but it's not exactly where we would ideally like it to be, right? And then you start exercising, still taking the exact same dose of metformin, and now you're able to get it down to like five or six. You know, it's like, okay, well, you don't actually necessarily need to change your dose. You just had to, in, you know, bring in the intervention of exercise and now you're able to get your... glucose into a good level that's very common for people to experience so there's not always going to need to be a medication adjustment but for some people there will be and also if we're talking about exercise this is especially a little bit more relevant to if someone is on exogenous insulin but we may need to be a little bit more careful and this is i'm more so speaking to personal trainers and coaches that listen to us like, if you have someone come to you and they say, Oh, look, I'm on insulin and I'm going to start training, like, we are going to have to explain to them that there are some alterations in blood glucose that can actually make insulin dosing, or I should say, there's alterations in blood glucose in response to exercise that can make insulin dosing a little bit more difficult. So, once they start exercising, they're going to have to pay more attention to their blood glucose levels and their response to that uh, or the insulin dose that they have to take in response to that, at least for the first couple of weeks. Right. Because what we don't want to have happen is someone go, oh, yeah, normally I take X amount of insulin when I eat this type of meal. Right. And they don't factor in that they actually exercise that morning. And now they don't necessarily need that much insulin to, you know, get the carbs or get the glucose out of their their blood right so there can be like low blood sugar events there can be like mild to even more uh, moderate to even severe uh, issues with that but again that is something that ideally they would be talking to their nurse their doctor their doctor their practitioner whoever uh, about that stuff but if you are someone that's starting exercise or you are coaching people that are starting exercise that are on insulin or potentially some other medications, but it's a little bit more of a concern with insulin, um, that there could be stuff like low blood sugar events, you know? Um, so we just have to be a bit more aware of that. Now, most diabetics, especially if you're on insulin, you're going to have a plan in place. Like you're going to have like most diabetics carry around some sort of glucose, like, like whether it's like, you know, Haribo or something like that, where it's like, in case I do accidentally take too much insulin, I at least know that I have something on hand to help with that, you know? Um, so that's just something to, to consider. Again, as we said, you might need to adjust your dose over time, et cetera, et cetera. But that would be stuff that you would be talking to a practitioner about. Other than that, though, Gary, is there any other you know potential contraindications or complications that might stop someone exercising or make us a little bit more hesitant to get someone into exercise?
0: Yeah. The, the only final thing I suppose is, um, late in the disease of, of, of type two diabetes, as you begin to, you know, have these chronic effects of high blood glucose beginning to take their toll, you can end up with damage to blood vessels. You can end up with damage uh, to nerves, uh, both in terms of just like basic sensory nerves, and then also autonomic nerves, which are the your kind of automatic underlying nervous system, the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. So what can happen is you can end up with things like uh, problems with your balance. You can end up with problems in terms of not having good sensory function in your feet. So you can end up with um, a couple of different things that might make it a bit more difficult to uh, engage in an exercise program it might make you require a couple of different changes this is going to be pretty late stage in, in diabetes. Okay. It's, it's not going to be a concern for most people, but it is something that does become more of a concern over time. And obviously then that exists on a spectrum where you can also, you know, have people who have, for example, um, diabetic ulcers, you can have people um, who have um, associated comorbidities, like hypertension, cardiovascular disease, and you can have people who have had amputations or might be awaiting amputation. So These different changes all exist on that spectrum of late stage disease and might require a bit more nuanced management uh, at that point in time. So, um, for example, a a simple one would be, let's say someone um, has, you know, significant um, nerve damage and they're at the point where, you know, maintaining their their balance and their and their proprioception everything during a squat is just it's not working well for them maybe they do a leg press instead you know instead of doing a walking lunge they're doing a a single leg press uh, instead so there are those changes but that kind of comes back to just basic exercise like programming you know having your your head screwed on like regardless of why someone presents to me with problems with their balance or problems with their sensation i'm going to be modifying exercise it's not necessarily that it's diabetes as such but it is something to be aware of
1: yeah, 100%. Um, anyway, I think that covers everything that we wanted to cover in this yep. episode. Do you have anything else to add to it?
0: Uh, no, I don't think so. I just think that the only point I would reiterate is that like, diabetes is generally like a, a multidisciplinary or multimodal management type of disease in that you're going to have your diabetic nurse you might get advice from a dietitian. you might get advice from a personal trainer or physio if you're talking about exercise so and then you've got your doctor with the medications etc so you've got multiple different people who are trying to coordinate this long term um you know alongside you and to use them you know so if you're don't get so caught up in trying to Fix all this with exercise and nutrition on your own because sometimes you can run yourself into problems. Like you start the new exercise program, you didn't know that there was a high risk of, you know, your medication causing low blood glucose, let's say. and that varies quite a bit between medications. Some of them high risk of hypoglycemic events. some of them quite a low risk, okay? Some of them have, Some other side effects that might impact exercise, some of them have none. So always uh, when you're engaging in a new exercise program or a nutrition program, uh, speak to those people that are in charge of your care, and that will generally make things uh, much smoother. So that's
1: it. 100%. So Gary, where can people find us?
0: Yeah, so as always, guys, we do have a coaching service at Triage. And if you'd like to work with us, you can look in the description box below and apply Uh, For coaching with myself or Patty or any other member of the triage team, we offer both full coaching in terms of training and nutrition and all the lifestyle advice that comes with that and nutrition only coaching for those who feel like their training is in check or they have more nutrition specific issues they'd like to work on. If you don't want to engage with that, we also have a service that's available for coaches themselves or budding coaches or nutritionists. So we have a nutrition certification that you can sign up to, to become a certified nutritionist under triage. And that's uh, available for people who just want to take that path independently. Maybe it's just for their own education, they don't even want to use it. Or maybe it's the personal trainer who wants to really strengthen their coaching practice by leveling up their nutrition knowledge. So you can get involved with that. If you don't want to engage in any of those services, but you want loads of free information, make sure you're following us on social media at triage method and all of the respective coaches who post independent content as well. And then you can also Continue to listen to the podcast, share the podcast, leave a rating and review, and subscribe to the Triage Method email list where you'll receive exclusive content that doesn't go on our social media, but is of considerable benefit to your health, performance, and body composition. So that's it from us.